Heavenly Father, we rejoice in you this morning, and we thank you that your spirit is powerful and enabling to teach us, instruct us, comfort us, guide us, build us up, because truly, Father, we are weak and destitute, poor and afflicted, except by your grace. When your grace found us, we were as those the word describes as dead our transgressions and sins, lost, with no hope of finding our way home. Only a short time left in each of our short lives to keep retracing our circular steps back to where we came, aimless, no direction, no future. And if eyes opened only to the fact that we had nothing worth living for and only death and the horror of hell to look forward to, when we were most honest about our sinful condition. It was in this state of miry clay where our castles that had built on sand were crumbled and broken before us that you intervened in the heart of every true believer confessing Jesus as Lord, celebrating in unity here this morning. They have only the grace of God to which to owe the firm foundation upon which their life now stands. Lord, in this truth from your word is a glorious promise that what you build on that foundation will endure. The things that we can't necessarily see with our eyes, but we take by faith, we know will far outlast even the course of this earth. We thank you for these promises. We only pray as we read your word and cry out to you, Holy Spirit, to make it real to our hearts that as we study, we would have a greater boldness and a greater ability to move more of our purposes, our plans, our emotions, and our hopes for the future, Lord, firmly between the pages of your scripture, not on the will or whim of man, not in self-confidence, not in pride, but in a humbled confession that Jesus is Lord, and on his life, death, and resurrection, my hope hinges. Father, we pray that you would accomplish this in our hearts as we're humble before your wisdom and your word. And we pray that we would leave with treasure gleaned from this treasure trove of riches, wisdom, and glorious insight that you have given us in this beautiful love letter, letter, thousands of pages written for us to behold and to rejoice and worship that the King of Kings And the God of all gods and the transcendent creator of the universe has made himself known to us, his adopted sons and daughters. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What a privilege to gather here in fellowship with you this morning and to share in his word. If you would turn with me to Psalm chapter 10. I'd like to begin in a few moments by reading all the way through the psalm, which has become our once-a-month practice. On the second Sunday of the month, we've chosen to go through the psalms, and so here on our tenth month, it leads us to this psalm. Just a note of introduction for you. Psalm chapter 9 and Psalm chapter 10 could be taken as a pair. If you remember last month's message at all, It emphasized in Psalm 9, or we sought to draw out the emphasis from Psalm 9, that God opposes institutional evil. That when man conspires together via government, enterprise, business, two people coming up with a plan, 
any kind of scheme, it gives him no protection and no deniability when the Lord comes and delivers his judgments. There is no place to hide when the author and arbiter of righteousness raises up his standard and judges whether you or the institution you belong to falls short of his glory. There's nothing to hide behind when the wisdom of God is brought to bear upon the foolishness of man. Whereas Psalm chapter 9 emphasized, called out institutional evil, Psalm chapter 10 opens and really calls to account individual evil. The finger of God is placed on the heart of man as we see the essence of what makes sin sin and how it reveals itself in the life, the decisions, the worldview, the practices of the godless. This is a psalm that's meant to convict us if we show any of these patterns of behavior. It's meant to call the knees of the sinner to bow before the Lordship of Christ. It's also called to encourage, again, the downtrodden and afflicted that wickedness endures for a season, but will never triumph, will never have the last word. But the finished work of Christ on Calvary will rule that final day. Evidence of that is seen in His Word and the faith of the believers, even if their experience and the world around them seems to give the impression that evil has been enduring and prospering. So with that introduction, I'd like to read this psalm. There's 18 verses in Psalm 10. We'll begin with verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing, deceit, and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in the thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed and sink down and fall by his might. Again, notice verse 11. He says, in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. There's a shift here in verse 12. As the psalmist turns his attention from an assessment of evil to a declaration and an appeal to his God, he says, arise, O Lord, O God. Lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account, but you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself, you have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer, call his wickedness to account till you find none. Verse 16, the Lord is king 
forever and ever. The nations perish from His land. O Lord, You hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline Your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. The title of this morning's message is Lament, Resolved, and Praise. The first verse really is a typical verse of lament, a crying out, a beseeching of the Lord on behalf of the attributes you know to be true to right the wickedness, right the wrong, and right the feeling of oppression. Why, O Lord, verse 1, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? A desperate cry. But as you see in the title of this message reflects this lament, this psalm that opens with this cry of why, O Lord, questioning God's purposes to some degree is resolved as he remembers God's purposes, even in God enduring in his providence and long suffering with limited evil for a season in order that at the end he might be all the more proven to be triumphant, powerful, and glorious. A conqueror is famous in history because he has overcome formidable enemies. If a conqueror claimed that he was immutable, that no one could unseat his throne, yet he was never challenged, would you respect him? Would his glory be as obvious to you, his claim be as credible? For the audience that views history, all of us one day, and for the saints now who joyfully do so, with an awakened heart and open ears and mind, and celebrate His sovereignty, and also the wicked eventually at the judgment seat of Christ, the overwhelming testimony of God's might and power, and His right arm that is not too short to save, His right hand that is almighty and powerful to overcome evil, His credibility and testimony will surpass every other foolish claim to authority and power that any man has lifted up against his name when he is seen as final Lord and King and conqueror over all evil, all regimes, every nation, every tyrant, every oppressor, every bit of tyranny this world has ever known. So when you feel like the psalmist did in the beginning and lamenting that things have never been worse and seem to get only worse as we move toward the future, and it seems that the darkness is so thick that the light almost couldn't penetrate. And the deception is so deep that his elect would even be deceived if possible. If you have those feelings, take that lament to the Lord. But as you contemplate his character, his nature, his attributes, his works, what he's done and what he's promised to do, I think the takeaway at the end of this psalm is that a lament is resolved in praise. And that which tends toward discouragement and despair can be transformed into a song praising and exalting the authority and power of our God. If you would notice with me just a few things that remind us how incredibly relevant the Psalms, these ancient bits of poetry recorded in this ancient glorious book are for us today. This blows my mind and this is just the tip of the iceberg. Notice as you read this psalm and just take it for what it is, you can't go away without the realization that justice is completely lost on humanism. Is that a message that is relevant for today? 
Are our governments, leaders, national authorities motivated by man and his ability, his wisdom, humanism, atheism, godlessness? Absolutely. You'd be blind not to make that cultural assessment as you see the testimony in every, nearly every headline written, trumpeted, proclaimed, speeches, things that people say, write, editorials, forums, newspapers, talk shows. Across the board in our culture, you see a total lack of humility and a godless, arrogant culture that has presumed themsel- on themselves the mantle of authority and the ability to control and shape the future. They are now the self-proclaimed princes of peace. They are now the self-proclaimed warlords. They are now the mighty ones to save. Trust in them. They will provide. They will protect. They will be your all in all. They will be your foundation. And these new ideologies and men that have risen are no different than the ideologies and the men that rose in the time of the Psalms. And the psalmist, with the clarity that the Holy Spirit gave him, saw through the facade, saw through the mask of tyranny, and knew underneath the surface that justice and righteousness is completely lost on humanism. The man who denies God will never act justly. The man who presumes himself to be powerful will never act righteous. He will always use people as leverage for his ends. He will always be intrinsically selfish. He will always trample on the poor and the weak, the destitute and the afflicted, Those who don't have the ability to help themselves will be the stair steps on his ladder to success. He will not deny himself the privilege of self-wealth acquisition to stop as the Good Samaritan did and help the lowly, the beaten, the potential enemy by beaten down by the cares and the afflictions of life in the ditch, knowing that virtue, justice, righteousness would demand that you do such a thing. No care for righteousness. No care for God's law. Only care for the self-acclaimed advancement of themselves and their humanistic agenda. Justice is completely lost on humanism. Note another absolute and timeless relevant theme in this psalm. The inevitable tyranny of the godless state. The inevitable tyranny of the godless state. One might ask, do you mean the state of man's heart? Or do you mean the state in the institutional sense, like a government? The answer is yes, both. Inevitable tyranny of the godless state. If history doesn't teach us this, and our new ambitious socialistic endeavors in the last hundred plus years or more, then we will never learn unless we bring ourselves bare before and humbly bow before the word of God. The inevitable tyranny of the godless state. When man denies his God, he always becomes tyrannical. Notice in this psalm that we can learn that celebrity is a complete perversion of purpose and faculties. Celebrity, celebrating man for man's sake. And I don't care if you're a power-hungry politician or you're a self-acclaimed star and artist on the red carpet at some stupid award show in Hollywood. Celebrity is a complete perversion of purpose and faculties. It redirects all your energy, all your abilities, all your creative things you think you can do and all the reason for existence, things that are profound and laudable in a perverse direction. We begin to celebrate people because they're famous, because they have affairs. And we're more compelled by the news of the day or who's broken up and which marriages are failing than we are the fact that you might fellowship with a couple 
who's been married for 40 years, 60 years. That is something to be celebrated. That is a rarity in our culture. We ought to have cover stories of faithful marriages that have endured for 60 years. On the pages, the front pages of People magazine. Do you ever see that? No. It's always a famous marriage of a dignitary or something that's splashy or sparkly or proud or arrogant, self-acclaimed, godless. All of their faculties and purposes redirected by a perverse notion that man on his own intrinsic nature ought to be celebrated. Thus the true virtue, the true beauty, the truly enduring are lost in the shuffle. What do we have to look forward to? Should we continue deceived by all these distractions? It's also obvious in this passage, in this text, and all of Scripture, that judgment awaits the unrepentant, godless culture or person. Finally, competing worldviews are exposed completely in this passage. Their essence, their evidence, and their end. And those are three categories that you could arrange this psalm by. I got to be honest with you, it's kind of a shotgun approach in this message. It could be a little bit more specifically arranged around those three. But for further study, you can note the essence of evil and the essence of good in this psalm. You can note the evidence of individual heart that's bent towards evil in this psalm. We'll cover a few of these, I trust. But there could be more, there's much more that could be said. And then finally, the end, the end of evil and the end of goodness, as the Lord defines, are all present in this text. And finally, or one more, just an addendum, it is pre- preeminently clear that for the godless to remain in their self-assured, narcissistic worship, that they must do several things. In other words, if you presume yourself to be God, if you're going to deny his existence, and that's essentially what the psalm is about, you have to do a few things to make yourself confident in your position, and they will be as follows. This is just my summary. There's more, again, that could be gleaned. First, you will have a self-inflicted blindness. There's no way you will humble yourself to even admit the reality that you are living a foolish life and that it's, it's foolish and its own testimony has not produced fruit. Look behind you. Do you see a track record of faithfulness? You see a track record of endurance in your family and, and a strong record in history that your choices in the direction of your future are laudable and should be celebrated. And the answer is always no if you live in a godless state. But you're always blind to learn from your mistakes. You've heard the old adage, those who refuse to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Well, so many people say that saying flippantly over and over again, but it hasn't helped us, has it? The only difference is these days is the cycle's a little shorter. That is, our attention span is diminished. We're likely to repeat the same sins as a faster and faster cycle. Knowing full well the old proverb that those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. There's more that you have to do than just pay attention to history. You have to pay attention to God's word and law. You have to humble yourself or you are doomed to remain in your sin. It's not so much a cycle where we rise to goodness, prominence, and then we fall in despair and shame. It's more so that we stay a slave to sin. Only when we confess ourselves as destitute, wicked, lost, and dead before the righteousness of God, will we have any hope of learning from history. We must be aware of our sin. But for those who remain blind, there's a self-inflicted notion that we must remain blind. Otherwise, we can't justify ourselves. Secondly, 
the pre, the, it's predominantly clear that for the godless to remain in this narcissistic worshiping state, they must reaffirm by a constant exercise, reaffirm themselves by a constant exercise of tangible power. In other words, God is powerful and it is undeniable. The Bible says, wake up, you who have even never touched a Bible page, never heard a single sermon, wake up and look around you. The sun has risen, the trees flower and bud, they drop seeds, they sprout. These delicate, detailed ecosystems exist in a glorious balance to produce the fullness of life you see around you in this creation. Wake up. Does that not testify that God is powerful? Can you name a tyrant who has endured, who's lived forever? Can you name an artist who has achieved his goal of immortality? No, they all die. Everyone. They stand waiting, as it were, before the judgment seat of Christ to be joined by all other fools of history who one day give an account for their actions. God is powerful. There is none that are immutable. There is none that can create a universe. There is none that can declare righteousness and not be proven foolish other than the terms that God has already immutably established before they were even born. And there is none that can shape the future and history in such a way as to thwart his ultimate sovereign will. There is none. But we must lie to ourselves that we do have the power. So we must exercise the wicked government or individual. We must exercise that power and thus the weak become the brunt of the godless state. It's most efficiently exercised over the weak to prove ourselves that we do have power over things. We trample on those who are victims, and we trample on the weak with little thought to the poor, and instead they become proof to us that we can control and suppress and have power over the future and otherwise. Number three is self-serving, indiscriminate acquisition of wealth and influence. We acquire as much wealth as possible, a much, as much security as possible in this life because, again, we're trying to pretend we're God. And then again, a self-absorption, rendering humility as an unintelligible foreign language. If you're presuming to be God, the notion of humility will not even enter your consciousness. It's a foreign language to you. What is humility if there's nothing more higher or more worthy of praise or pursuit than myself. Humility is lost on the culture of the godless. Also, there's a, self, a self-proceeding notion of law and ethics, a progressive ethic, if you were. Have you noticed in America things that we used to say we no longer say anymore? Do you know that there was a show at one time called Father Knows Best, wasn't there? Some of you who are older than I could vouch for this. Great show, yeah. Can anyone name a show by a similar title today? No, Father doesn't know best anymore. Yeah, Father is a doofus. Thank you, Danny. That is an accurate assessment of of shows today. Have you noticed the comic relief in sitcoms, incidentally? Have you noticed beer commercials? We've used this analogy before. The Father is an idiot in today's culture. The Father is the brunt of jokes. He's the comic relief of society. The man, the individual, the leader, the one given, created first with the stewardship mandate to have dominion over this earth is constantly downtrodden and tripping over the earth. He's falling and foolish. And this is the, this is the decadence of culture illustrated in what we have done. 
We have changed our notion of right and wrong. We've changed ethics. We describe them by a different standard now. We no longer call attention to what we ought to be in Scripture. Instead, we celebrate and satirize what we, we think we are. And, of course, the women's lib premise comes in factor here as long as we're using the doofus man analogy. The women's lib premise is that mother knows best just as much as father knows best, and we don't expect the father to have any decisive role in the, in the future. And consequently, we, the whole design of God's order breaks down because we have said that there is no authority over me. There is no higher law over self. This shows up in our legislation. We use the term at Providence from time to time called positive law. And this is a notion of law that man is over it. That law is not over man. God's standards do not rule the day in spite of what man thinks or feels at a particular time. Man now discovers and affirms law by taking a poll. He now says that if he can get a majority to amend or to change a piece of legislation, it's the new standard of righteousness. Such is not the case, but the godless must pretend it is so. This is all what Psalm 10 teaches us. Isn't this amazing? Isn't it just preeminently relevant for our society today? And in a way, we see how much we have to repent of, but in a way, it's so liberating to have such a close relationship with truth. You and I, the believer, can sit down with this book and we can be reacquainted with the immutable, the rock, bedrock of our faith, the solid foundation that will never change. Though we may be distracted and discouraged by the winds and whims of doctrine that come across society constantly, incessantly, and we know will endure till the end in some form or another, they will not endure at the end. At the end, the bedrock will remain of the truth and reality of Christ and his word and all other pretentious notions, all other pretenders, will fall and fail. As we continue to look into this psalm, let's return to the text and notice a few things. At the top of the rest of this message, if you wanted to put this heading, you could write, The Wicked by Definition, Essence and Evidence. First of all, the desires of his soul are the means justifying his ends. I'm sorry, the means justifying end. In other words, the desires of the soul inside of the wicked man, he considers that he pleads what his soul wants to do and those desires to justify any end to gain them. The desires of his soul are the means justifying end. We know that the Bible declares the end that we should pursue and the Bible also declares the means to pursue it. But for those who are wicked and arrogant, they think otherwise. In verse 2 it says, In arrogance the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. This phrase in chapter 3, the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, as we take that in context, and as his poetry reveals, he re, his identity and his purpose begins to revolve around the desires of his soul. The sinful bent of his nature is what begins to control every area of his life. The wicked man who embraces his sin, celebrates it, and 
willingly declares it as part of his identity, begins to be driven and wholly given over to his captor, Satan, his captor, sin, and the desires of his soul begin to replace or begin to be, ever more so, the end of his ambitions, and then he embraces every means by which to attain them. In the same verse, it says, the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. This greedy for gain is a great summary phrase of how a life lived apart from God's truth looks and what kind of philosophy it's driven by. This is later developed as we move through the psalm. In other words, how does a man justify the end of pursuing his own desires or what ways does he pursue to do that? Well, we find here in verse 7 that how he expresses himself is a captive to his desires. It says his soul is filled, or I'm sorry, his mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. The desires of his soul begin to be worn more on his sleeve and his mouth, poetically, how he expresses himself begins to betray a heart condition that has renounced and rejected God. I think we see this in growing measure in our culture as well. It's a very self-centered picture of wickedness, individual wickedness that Psalm 10 portrays. With the advent of social media, as we've mentioned before, even in last week's message, in this culture, it seems more and more apparent to me that as people sit down and they engineer their Facebook page, They put a lot of time, energy, thought. They strategize on how they want themselves to be perceived. It's interesting because many times they project a different image in that medium than they do when they're among their friends. In other words, if you remove a few of the barriers of social interaction and you have just something a little closer to the heart, you might find their mouth confessing the reality of their soul. They're wishing to express themselves in a certain way. And as we assess our own hearts, we read our own Facebook page as it were, or the way we want to be perceived or presented to culture, regardless of whether you're online or not, we need to hold ourselves accountable to Scripture and realize that we live for God's glory, not our own. We don't live And we don't find our purpose as Christians and as believers to be perceived and lauded, celebrated, affirmed, and praised. We are not praiseworthy. If there's anything worth boasting about, as Paul said, may it be the work of Christ in you. Oh, I love the way you do this. Oh, I can't believe how you do that. It's just amazing to me how this and the... And it might just be encouragement from that individual, not so much sin as it's granted but it can easily become sin as it's taken. If we, pre- if we present ourselves in such a way to get a praise response from others that would celebrate ourself, then our mouth, our presentation, our profile of self must repent. We must repent for it because the wicked are filled with cursing, deceit, and oppression. And they're prone to mischief and iniquity in the way they express themselves. Not just how they express themselves, but also how they position themselves as we continue in verse 8. He, that is the archetypical wicked man, he sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, 
He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. So you see that man strategizes. He places himself, he positions himself for certain ends. But without confessing faith and bowing the knee before Christ, he pursues these things in a way that will give him the upper hand, will take advantage of a situation for his own ends and his glory. He positions himself for self-promotion indiscriminately, not thinking of others, thinking of his own. So this is the way the world works. There's a hundred seminars you could go to to teach you how to be a good businessman or something of that nature, maybe even how to have a successful church. But if you were to assess them at their core, you might find that a lot of the pragmatics, a lot of the policies and formulas that we espouse today at their root core are just the positioning of ourselves at the expense of God's will to promote us and to not live for Him. He expresses Himself. He positions Himself. And number three, He indulges Himself. As we read His eyes in the end of verse 8, His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. His eyes and what He takes in and what He indulges is also a slave and governed by the things His soul desires and His sin. He continues in verse 9, He lurks in ambush like a lion in the thicket, again seeking to indulge. And also as we continue to read and we see this concept of hiding in these places, actually planning and ambushing, strategizing for self-promotion. He lurks in ambush like a lion in the thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into a net. We see the further, further entrenchment of evil in the heart as man begins to become anti-discipled, if you will, conditioned, a false discipline, to where pretty soon all he knows to think of and plan for tomorrow is a self-centered endeavor. It moves on in this passage from describing the desires of the soul and how they are shown and expressed and positioned and indulgent and conditioning to another point, The wicked, by definition, in essence and evidence, could be this. The essence of wickedness, a cursing and renunciation of God that are implicit, that are an implicit statement of faith. There's an implied statement of faith, implied in the heart of the unbeliever, that curses and renounces God. In other words, another way to say this or illustrate this is you may know somebody who would never say to you, I am an avowed atheist. You know, we know of a few classic examples of outspoken men who are bold and arrogant enough in their mouth to actually say there is no God and it's wicked to consider that a reality. Men like Christopher Hitchens recently died of cancer come to mind. Men like Dawkins, you know, who writes promoting an evolutionary worldview and blaspheming Christ and persecuting by way of his literary works, Christ's own, come to mind. There's documentaries, you know, that have promoted intelligent design. Remember a fellow named Stein produced one, and he interviewed men who were willing to say these things boldly. I'm an atheist, there is no God. Christopher Hitchens wrote that among his other provocative, intentionally provocative writings, he said at one time that, if I'm not quoting him directly, it's close enough, that Mother Teresa is a lying, thieving, Albanian dwarf. 
in his godless language, he was betraying the heart of tyranny at the expense of vilifying one who had given herself for the destitute and the poor. He was advancing his writing career by stamping on the afflicted. That's, those are classic examples. But the Bible doesn't let you get away with murder in your heart when you're angry with your brother. And it doesn't let you get away with never saying with your mouth you're an atheist if your heart betrays the same. There's an implicit statement of faith for the life lived as if God is not watching that betrays the same heart as Christopher Hitchens, as Dawkins, as any of those other godless men I just mentioned, and worse, Lucifer himself. This is apparent in, throughout this entire chapter. Notice in verse 4, In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Your thinking makes no sense, unbeliever, unless you somehow implicitly at least believe there is no God. You're thinking and acting as if you will never give an accounting to somebody who can see all and is all righteous and powerful, hates perversion. You're acting as if he does not exist. All your thoughts are there is no God. A cursing and a renunciation of God in the Bible calls the attention of the unbeliever to judge his heart against this righteous standard. Verse 6 continues. He says again in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. And you see his intent co-ops the immutability of God. God has made himself generationally manifest in all his glory. This book is the lone historically and theologically authoritative generational chronicle that history will ever know. God decrees that families carry his name forward. And that families are dysfunctional if they don't. But the wicked man, he seeks to take these institutions and pervert them for his own ends. And he says, for all generations, I will be remembered. He says, I will not be moved. He is claiming the immutability of God. He is saying in his heart, he's living in such a way as to say, the things that I have planned and purposed and the intention for the future is unshakable. I have, I have pro protected it from every eventuality. I have closed all the loopholes and I have ensured my future apart from bowing in humility before the all-powerful, omniscient, holy God. You see this implicit atheism. You continue to see this again and again. That was verse 6. Follow with me to verse 11. He says in his heart, God has forgotten, he has hidden his face, he will never see. So he's living as if God does not see his sin. And I know we're all guilty to some degree and maybe at any moment of some of these. But the believer knows to repent. He knows that the truth is God has seen every recess of his soul. Every little action that man, that has escaped man in our facade that we present to others has allowed us to hide. God sees right through and cuts to the heart. And that brings us in repentance and worship before his throne, even on a morning like this morning. For the wicked, it is not so. They go on pretending that God cannot see them. And then in verse 13, why does the wicked renounce God? Again, he says, in his heart, you will not call to account. There will not be a judgment day. Either we'll die and become dirt, 
or, you know, whatever, we become an angel reincarnated, whatever your view of the future next life is, they avoid the truth, the truth that there is a judgment seat and a reckoning and that man must give an account for everything he has ever said. I was in a conversation recently, a demanding one to say the least, and at the close of the conversation, I was looking for my own footing. How do I leave this conversation My thought was, I've probably done a lot to promote myself, to fight for my own position, maybe in a way that's distracting from the glory of God. But verses like this, passages like this were ringing in my head. And it occurred to me to ask one simple question. Do you believe, this individual I was talking to, do you believe that one day every individual man will stand before an almighty God and answer this question? What have you done with the son I provided for your redemption. What have you done? Have you ignored him, rejected him, beaten him, crucified him, spit on his face, pretended he can't see, pretended he's not powerful, that he doesn't sit on a judgment seat, that he is not authoritative, not sovereign, doesn't control the future, doesn't have any kingdom rights in this earth? Or have you bowed in humility before him, knowing that you at some point in your life have transgressed every tenant of his law? And weep before his lordship and say, unless your pure mercy, your mercy alone and grace alone save me, I deserve the hell prepared for your justice to be venerated in the end. And that must happen. We must present that truth because it will happen that day, that is, that reckoning before the judgment seat of the Almighty. I pray for a quickening and emboldening in my own testimony and yours to press the point a little bit more as we get used to sharing our faith. And I think a psalm like this is written to draw our attention to what's really at stake, how short life is and how insidious our own and others' wickedness will be to distract us from the inevitable and from the righteous. The end is nigh. It's, it's going to be here at any moment, and no, no one is promised tomorrow, as the word says. Final point. Pride of face is the condition enabling blindness. There's this interesting phrase describing in verse 4, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. The pride of his face, perhaps as we take this poetic term again, the pride of face is this self-perception. I have a perception of self. Everyone does. You perceive yourself in a certain way. Here is the ultimate question. Does the perception of yourself, is it shaped by the truth of Scripture or is it shaped by anything else? Anything else will codify in your heart, will entrench blindness and deception. But if your perception of self is governed by what the Bible says that the heart is, at enmity with the Lord, incapable of a good work, only a filthy rag and light, of his, the perfection he requires, the light of the sin that has passed along Adam, the spiritual blood poisoning of all of humanity. And as we consider these things, it reminds us that the pride of face, that this self-advancing and self-centered perception of us is the condition that enables long-standing blindness and deception. It's this kind of attitude that motivates no one to seek the face of the Lord unless they repent. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. It doesn't occur to him to seek the Lord if he has a false notion that he is righteous of his own accord, this self-perception. 
He does not keep the reality of judgment in view. It says in verse 5, his ways prosper at all times. And that's again perception, I believe. That, notion, or that, that phrase betrays the deception that lies within the heart of the unbeliever. He doesn't really see himself at a disadvantage. He thinks that his ways are prospering. I'm doing just fine, thank you. I don't need your convicting hellfire and brimstone type preaching, young man. His ways prosper at all times, but your judgments are on, on high, out of his sight. God's judgments remain out of sight of those who, with whom pride of face has conditioned them to be blind. And it goes on, it says, as for all his foes, he puffs at them. He scoffs at the opposition and the testimony of his own frailty and failures. Now that is a, the wicked by definition. That's the essence and the evidence and the end of the whole world unless they bow before Christ. It's a stark picture, and it's one we ought to keep in mind as we seek to grow in our own faith and understanding and as we confess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and preach that gospel to others. There's also running congruent with this reality, with this definition of wickedness, a description like uh, perhaps you could say the faces of injustice, those who are the brunt, those who have to endure in a world like this. Just very briefly, they're the poor, as mentioned in verse 1, those who are pursued by the wicked. They're the innocent, those who are murdered by the wicked, the helpless, those who are plotted against. The poor is said twice in verse 9, they're seized and trapped, they're victims of extortion. They're the helpless, the afflicted. They're the helpless again in verse 14, the desperate for divine intervention. The fatherless, the ones at the mercy of the Lord and His help. The afflicted, those who desire and uh, for the demands of the Lord to be levied against the wickedness that they feel so tangibly about them at any given time. They're hoping for the ear of the Lord to hear their cry. They're the fatherless, those who divine justice, they're dependent on it for their very livelihood, that the wrongs be righted and they're the oppressed. And these are the other class that is created when tyranny rules in a nation. <coughs> And tyranny reigns, <coughs> excuse me, in a society. And this is no virtue in and of itself. But the great blessing is, is if you find yourself among the downtrodden, the Lord might use that to reveal to you your own brokenness. When Jesus preached to us <coughs> in Matthew chapter 5, as we've studied at length, he said, blessed are all of these words, essentially, the meek, the poor, the brokenhearted, so if you are tempted to be discouraged and just totally despairing because you feel like you are in the receiving end of an unjust culture, have been beaten down by life, know this, that the destitute, by his by nature, probabilities, and the way God works, seem to be, in Scripture, much more likely to receive the truth of the Lordship of God than those who claim to be Him. Those who know their need are sooner oftentimes with the Holy Spirit using the reality of their helpless, seemingly and hopeless situation. Holy Spirit using that reality to cause them to cry out, bring their lament <coughs> before the Almighty, the only one truly powerful <coughs> with the ability to affect their own heart, their own condition, 
and their own future for His glory. And as we begin to bring this message to a point of conclusion, again in verse 1 we read this lament that the chapter opens with, Why, O Lord, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself in trouble? And then if we skip over what we've just covered and continue to see how the psalmist finds resolve and praise, he says in verse 12, bringing his appeal to the only place he knows will do any good. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. The Lord will take these causes at some point in the imminent future into His own hands. He will take justice once again, totally into His own hands. To you the helpless commits Himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. And then this confession of praise at the end. (coughs) Excuse me. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. You see, where the wicked has said in his heart, God does not exist. Oh, thanks, soldiers. Excuse me. You see, where the wicked has said in his heart that God does not exist, or I am God, or God is dead, or God's will will not be accomplished, God will fail. In answer to every one of these, self-proclaimed and implicit godless statements of faith, the psalmist resolves his lament by confessing the exact opposite. Others do not see you, and others have been destitute at times, and the wicked have claimed that you have left and forgotten them and do not see. The psalmist says in verse 14, But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hand. To you the helpless commits himself. Again, where the wicked have confessed in their heart that God does not exist, the psalmist declares, in contrary opinion in his praise, that the Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. And again, the most powerful picture of man's authority will perish from God's land. He owns it because he is king forever and ever. Where the wicked have said, God is dead. He is gone. He does not hear. Verse 17, O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Where the wicked have said, I am God. The psalmist confesses rightly, you are of the earth, and there is no God but our Lord. As we see these concluding statements, 
perhaps a great takeaway by application for you, believer, from this psalm would be this. The lament finds closure in praise and enthrones the Lord in our consciousness and prophesies judgment for wickedness. Excuse me. I apologize for my failing voice. I pray the word of the Lord makes up for my weakness of voice this morning. And finally, once more, this lament finds closure in praise by enthroning the Lord in our consciousness and prophesying judgment for wickedness. If it looks like in the world around you that the Lordship of Christ is not exerted to the degree that you wish, make sure in your prayer that Christ is enthroned in your consciousness, in your faith, in your confession, and in your praise. Because surely the time is short and there will come a day in the near future when everyone who has denied him, who has confessed anything else, will have to eat the words and they will taste like hell eternal. This is the reality of the future and also reminds us of our glorious hope in Christ. If you would bow your head and close in prayer with me. Father, we thank you that even though we are too short-sighted to sometimes have a faith that is totally consistent and unassailable by the enemy, that we can go to you in prayer, sing a song like this, bring our lament before you, and find once again as consolation for our soul that you are God and there is no other. Lord, I pray if any are feeling afflicted or downtrodden this morning, that they would find resolution for their lament and a confession of praise before your name. I pray, Lord, that if there are any who find themselves, Lord, now with the sharp sword of the word brought to bear in their own heart, lying outside of the fellowship of the believers because they have lived their life blinded in such a way as to affirm there is no God, I pray that they would say for the first time in their heart, there is a God. I repent for my sins against him and I place my faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Lord, let us carry this message forward, not in self-confidence, but in the confidence that your word reminds us we should have, that you are all powerful, that you never change and only you can redeem the lost soul of man. In Jesus' name we pray.